Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Good morning and welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare. My name is Dr. Stan Schwartz and I'm excited to welcome you all today and to get started on a great conversation about payment reform with our special guest. Before we do that though, I'd like to take a minute to talk about what's new in the state of COVID today. Um, one interesting thing is the big controversy around the amount of COVID-19 spread that was related to the big motorcycle event attended by, they say, 400,000 people in Sturgis, South Dakota. What's clear is that there has been spread of COVID as a result of this event. What's interesting is some people say it's hundreds, other people say it's hundreds of thousands. So stay tuned and we'll find out. It's very clear that big or unorganized type gatherings at this time are potentially dangerous. Second piece of big news I'm sure you've heard of is that AstraZeneca has put a pause on their trial of their new COVID vaccine. A woman in the United Kingdom developed some neurological symptoms. And of course, they're very sensitive to that because of the problems with the swine flu vaccine in 1976 and also in 2009, where there was a suspicion that there were neurological complications. I hope that this is just background activity because whenever you do trials with 30,000 people, people will get sick from other things at the same time. They'll show up incidentally, so stay tuned and we'll find out about that. And the third thing I think you all know about is all the controversy now over public health, what we're hearing from our public health officials, and so forth. There's one thing that's eminently clear is that COVID has, the politics around COVID, have caused a major loss of trust in our public health in this country. And one thing is also very clear, when you mix politics and science, all you get is science, all you get is politics, the science goes away. So let's get started today with our uh, special guest, Andrea Caballero. She is the program director for Catalyst for Payment Reform. This is one of the most interesting organizations you may never have heard about. And I hope that you'll learn more today and take away some important information. Um, she has over two decades of experience working uh, in the payment reform industry. And I think you'll enjoy what she has to say today. Uh, first, a quick disclosure. I've worked with CPR, uh, Catalyst for Payment Reform, with my work with Wellocay, the Northeastern Business Coalition on Health. And I've also, here at Zero Card, we've also submitted some data to CPR. So let's get started. Andrea, welcome. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you, Stan. It's great to be here. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I am the program director at CPR. I've been with Catalyst for Payment Reform since 2012, January of 2012. It's uh, almost, or it is 10 years old. So I've been with the organization of almost its entire life, not quite. Um, and uh, I can tell you a bit later about my portfolio of uh, activities, 
But um, prior to coming to CPR, I um, worked in large health plans um, and primarily in their government affairs and public policy departments, working both at the state and federal level. So I have a health policy interest, um, somewhat of a passion, and then uh, moved on into payment reform with CPR. So payment reform means a whole lot of different things to different people. You know, when I was in practice, every time I heard the word payment reform, I knew it meant I was going to get paid less money. But tell us what that means to employers and also to members, you know, of the various employers' health plans that we have. Yeah, I mean, payment reform does have different meaning to different people, and it kind of depends on um, on your point of view, like a physician might see it differently than a health plan than might an employer. Um, our definition is uh, pretty straightforward um, in terms of what we think payment reform is. And payment reform to us means that any, any payment made from whether it's a government entity to a provider or from a health plan to a provider, a Medicaid MCO to a provider, if it contains a quality component, meaning the provider has to perform on certain quality measures, then we consider it payment reform. So it's pretty straightforward and simple, um, must have quality. We don't prescribe what the quality measures are. Um, that's sort of in between the plan and the provider about what you know maybe that provider's specialty is or something like that. So we don't get into that, but it is um, definitely uh, has to have a quality component. If it's just, cost containment or efficiency mm. or utilization um, targets, we don't consider that to be payment reform. So give us an example like, you know, a surgery center, for example. I'm going in to get a knee or a scope on my knee or my shoulder fixed or my elbow repaired or carpal tunnel on my wrist. What kind of quality things would you be looking for? Well, again, we, we don't assess the quality measures that the plan might have in place with that ASC, but I think we would look, um, and I imagine the plan would look at things like um, complication rate or their revision rate um, or in, you know, infections or things like that. I mean, those to me seem, you know, right off the top of my head, the things that plans would have in place, but that would be different than perhaps primary care and what kind of quality measures you would have in a, for, excuse me, um, for primary care docs. So tell us what CPR might offer to um, a healthcare purchaser, an employer, or to the benefit advisors that may be listening in today. How would they engage with you and what would it be like? Yeah, well, CPR is a membership organization uh, we are a 501c3 that is a national independent. Um, we primarily work with large jumbo self-funded um, employers, but we also work with state agencies, um, Medicaid agencies, retiree, active employees. We have some universities um, and uh, Taft-Hartley trust funds. Mm -hmm. um, we also work with the three large benefit consulting firms. So it's, it's a diverse group of members but our reach is beyond just those, those members. Um, it goes to you know, smaller employers. I, I wouldn't say small employers to two to 50 perhaps, but um, certainly those on the smaller side that wouldn't be considered jumbo. And what we hope to, or we, we do offer um, members as well as purchasers are a variety of tools in which they can 
used to help them get more value out of their healthcare spending and, and teach them and give them tools to work with their health plans and um, providers and to ask the questions um, in order to get the marketplace to respond to them and work more efficiently for them. And it's one of our sort of core mantras is, uh, since we began was that if you, you can be the largest employer in the world and, uh, in, or in the country. You could be the largest employer in the country and still a health plan may not be able to customize something for you or may not want to. Um, so it's the idea of multiple employers getting together, asking the same things of the system at the same time, and that collective voice is really what is intended to, to um, get action. Great. Oh, by the way, I wanted to remind anybody that's listening in live, just use your chat feature here on the Zoom and uh, send us questions. There's no such thing as a good question or a bad question. We like all questions, except, of course, the ones we can't answer. But please feel free to use the chat. and We'll be watching that as we go along. So when you and I talked yesterday, you mentioned that payment reform has become really important in the context of the COVID-19 uh, epidemic that's going on now. What did you mean by that? And can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've been at payment reform for 10 years now. Um, it, it sort of was sparked after uh, the Affordable Care Act. And, um, you know, we, we were going to take a natural pause at this 10-year point to see where we at, we're at um, and what was working, what's not working. But COVID kind of um, presented a natural um, opportunity to take a pause and reflect. And what we're finding is that um, many providers who were still operating under a fee-for-service system, um, and it's you know well-documented and lots of news stories over the past six months that many of those provider organizations um, really struggled to survive, tried to keep their staff, um, you know, the utilization of their services went way down. So if they were reliant on volume of services in order to stay afloat, um, that volume just dried up and uh, therefore they didn't have any money coming in. Um, so those, those doctors are, and, and providers are really reevaluating, maybe I should be in some type of value-based contract, um, something that is other than fee-for-service. Um, so they're sort of swinging into the direction of, I need prepayment, I need capitation, I need something to make me more stable during these times of uncertainty. Um, expecting that the pandemic will be around for a while and utilization may not go back up to its regular uh, places. On the other hand, you've got provider organizations who, are, who have been in payment reform contracts like shared mm -hmm. savings or shared risk. And they're finding that if they're in shared risk, that means they have financial uh, exposure on the downside um, if they don't perform on quality and cost. And in those situations, they actually are um, wanting to put a pause on taking that financial risk and maybe I shouldn't expose myself that way. And I can't necessarily meet the quality metrics that I agreed to because mm -hmm. of utilization. So. We've got two dynamics going on here, those that want to move all in to um, uh, capitation 
for financial stability. And then you've got those who say, mm, I, I want to take a pause here because I don't know that I can meet all of the requirements that I set out to meet. Um, tell us, if you would, can, can payment reform exist in legacy fee-for-service models? I mean, does that preclude payment reform? Does it have to be an alternative model? Well, CPR has a pretty generous definition of that. Uh, we would say that um, a, a long-standing, easy-to-implement payment reform is fee-for-service plus pay-for-performance. Um, it's been around for a long time, and it, again, it's the easiest to implement. Um, and it's comfortable for providers who haven't gone further along. Um, I would say that the... Um, so we would consider that payment reform, but we'd certainly hope that people could advance beyond beyond just that. Uh, the um, so that that's what I would say that it can exist, but it's really um, not as uh, advanced, and it doesn't probably create the care transformation that payment reform is intended to do. When you mentioned that there has to be some measure of quality to demonstrate value, uh, but you don't specify it. I mean, is there a threshold that you establish that, yeah, it's a quality measure, but, you know, just saying that someone didn't get an infection with a common ordinary ambulatory surgery procedure, you know, isn't much of a quality measure because you don't expect, you know, the infection rate should be very close to zero. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, um, you know, where, where does CPR um, insert itself or where is it most appropriate for the plan and the provider to assess that? And, um, you know, I, uh, we, we don't prescribe those thresholds, but we work with health plans. Um, we work with the national health plans as well as some regional health plans. And we know that they all have thresholds that they use um, and, and, and they have targets. So, um, while we don't get into those types of weeds, it is somewhat of an honor system, if you will, that if we're going to measure payment reform and if we're going to ask health plans the dollars that are going through um, the system that are tied to quality, it's somewhat of an honor system. But um, based on what we know of the types of quality measures that they put in place, uh, it's pretty safe to say that they're pretty rigorous. So do your clients include health plans independent of the employer they're working for? The carrier, in other words, you work just with a with a major health plan like a Blue Cross or an Aetna or one of the Bucas. Well, our our members, um, oftentimes they're national in, in scope. So you've got you know they're companies that um, you know are wide in their geographies. So they may have to work with a national carrier but they also might have a presence, uh, a real strong geographic presence in one state where they would contract with the blues. So they, you know, there's oftentimes side by side, um, you know, things. So we, we our, our members and our, um, you know, the smaller the company gets and the more concentrated it is in one geography, the easier it is for them to just maybe work with one carrier, but oftentimes they're working with a national carrier, maybe a local. Sure. Well, we have a question here from a friend of mine in the great state of Rhode Island. And he asked, 
Tell us about the relationship between payment and reform and affordability. Does payment and reform always lead to affordability? How are they related? Oh, gosh, that's an excellent question. Um, so one of my, uh, when I was hired at CPR, was to develop what we call our scorecards on payment reform. And this was to measure how much payment reform there is in the country. And, you know, that was the baby, that was, uh, I guess we were just crawling then. Because if you didn't, if we didn't know how much there was, we couldn't go much farther than that. Um, so about two years ago, we decided to say, okay, we've gotten pretty good at measuring how much payment reform there is, but is that payment reform working? Is it accomplishing the goals mm -hmm. that it set out to do in terms of improving quality, efficiency, and affordability? So we developed Scorecard 2.0, um, and Scorecard 2.0 takes those payment reform measurement metrics that we had, but we then looked at 12 macro indicators um, to see if they've moved over the past 10 years. And if payment reform is intended, is doing its job, um, will we see improvement in those indicators? Um, so affordability was one of those macro indicators. And I will tell you, it was one of the hardest things to identify as a correlation between payment reform and affordability. Um, primarily because affordability means different things to different people. Um, and, and what we, ultimately landed on was do does the patient does the consumer feel that um their their plan or their um you know what they pay is affordable and and we measure that by looking at a national metric that was you know did you forego care due to cost right, right. and um and and sadly there were it was a pretty high i, I don't remember the a metric off the top of my head or the results off the top of my head, but the people did forego care due to cost. Um, and therefore that's an indicator to us that payment reform while intended to support affordability, um, payment reform in and of itself right. isn't going to do that. The one thing I will add to, to that, sorry, just to, um, is that it's really the prices. <laughs> um, so prices for services. So you can have payment reform that's on top of what you're paying, but if those prices continue to escalate, which they are, um, then, then payment reform itself isn't going to solve the problem of affordability. We'll have to address price. Right. Uh, another question we have is, tell us, let's say, and, and I'm going to put this in a, in a generic, de-identified example, let's say um, my company is Stan's Transmissions, and I've got 500 employer, employees, and I like what I hear. I want high-quality care, and I'm interested in what you're doing. What, what is my next step? Well, uh, Stan's Transmissions and the CEO can, um, or the benefits manager, if you have 500 employees, you probably have someone who's managing your benefits. Um, I would encourage all, any purchaser, really, of any size to come to Catalyze.org and you can create an account uh, very easily and have free access to all of the tools that CPR develops. Um, that's free to all purchasers, so employers of any size, and uh, you, all you have to do is set up an account so you can access those resources. Once you're there, um, I would encourage the, you know, the purchaser, the benefit manager to look at um, depends on what, where they are in their cycle of contracting. Depends on if they have a broker that they would like to give tools to. 
um, and have a communication with. Otherwise, I think uh, they would probably start with an R R RFI um, and, and then when there's a sourcing for a health plan, who do they want to contract with? Issue that RFI, look at those questions, see if they, um, you know, are things you're interested in. And then when you get to the contracting point, use the part of the model contracting language on payment reform. Yeah, I've seen uh, at least one of your toolkits, which I thought was really interesting, and I suggested it to one of our uh, coalition members uh, here in Oklahoma. So tell us, of all the things that you've done since you've been there since about the beginning, what is, has been your greatest, most gratifying achievement, accomplishment so far? Wow, that, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I would say for me as the program director and as the one mm -hmm. who developed our scorecard and um, you know, determined the metrics used to measure payment reform in the country, um, probably our greatest achievement, my greatest achievement so far has been the ability to measure payment reform at the state level and at mm -hmm. the national level. Um, you know, de developing numerators and denominators and coming up with percentages and things like that isn't always the most glamorous, but no one had measured payment reform before. Um, we came on the scene and, and now it's pretty much the standard, um, both the Healthcare Payment and Learning in Action Network, um, if people know the LAN, which is sort of the national effort, um, plus our measurement tools, I mean, it's, it's become quite a standard. So that I would say was a personal achievement. Um, I would also say that our ability to move the market, um, particularly when it comes to transparency, so price and quality transparency, I know people think that it's fairly ubiquitous now, but when we started and back probably in 2013 and 2014, there's a lot of resistance to giving um, patients and employers and customers um, price information about their provider network. Um, and we've kind of made a big stink about that. And now, uh, now you can see lots of price shopping tools, um, lots of access to information. There's still a lot of gaps. Um, it's not perfect, but um, we think that we played a, a major role in getting that um, you know, transparency of price and quality information to the, to, in the hands of consumers. So we are getting another question about that pricing in that um, someone is asking is in this context of payment reform and transparency, can it help a healthcare purchaser, an employer healthcare purchaser actually get better prices? I mean, is that, can they lower, through what their engagement with CPR, can the net result be better quality and lower prices if, if costs have become unaffordable to a, to a company? Well, you know, CPR is not in the business of directly negotiating contracts. Um, so I, I would say a direct engagement with CPR doesn't um, automatically yield lower prices. However, um, I would help, help yes. figure that out. Yes, exactly. So the idea is to um, offer tools to employers who can say, this is what you should be asking your health plan, or this is what you should be, um, you know, talking to your broker consultant about and, and give them the tools, which they may not have right now, to have those conversations. I'd also say that um, 
you know, working with a business coalition, a local business coalition, um, and having your local voice heard um, is a great way. We, as, as you mentioned, Stan, you know, we work with coalitions to make sure that that um, information and that reach gets into the hands of, you know, individual purchasers. Now, price is tricky because right. you've got, um, you've got a system here where uh, many people, many people in the system, not employers, but, you know, providers, health plans, they're very comfortable with discounts off of something. And everyone just thinks like, if I just get a greater discount, a bigger discount, then that, you know, that that's a win. Um, but it's not necessarily a win um, when the prices are still high. And so uh, we still haven't really cracked the nut of how do you not just do discounts off of charges, how are you actually going to lower those prices? Um, and, you know, I, the market isn't really correcting itself right now. Uh, it's, it's only seeing, it, you know, mm -hmm. the ability to increase prices. And so um, CPR, we look to our agenda in 2021, are really looking to see, like, how might we really put downward pressure on price, not just the greater discount off of charges. So you've told us about your accomplishments. What's your and the organization's biggest frustration right now that you, an example of what you'd like to change quickly and you can't get that pebble up the hill, so to speak? Well, you know, we're eternal optimists here. So we always think there's uh, opportunity, but I think um, probably the, what's most frustrating is, um, well, this one's hard, Stan, because <laughs> um, there's a, you know, the system is frustrating. I, I think what's really frustrating for us and our members and employers in general is the issue of, of pharmaceuticals and drug pricing and not being able to really figure that um, system out. Many coalitions have done great work on PBM activity and manufacturing, but really trying to get a handle on the pharmacy and the drug costs for employers, that's, that's been a frustration. Um, and then I think the other, um, frustration's too hard a word, but we're really hopeful that employers can find this moment in time that they can put their hands on the steering wheel when maybe they haven't put both hands on the steering wheel before. And um, we want them to really take control because the, the market around them is going to dictate for them. It's gonna dictate higher prices, it's gonna dictate less choice, it's gonna dictate all kinds of things unless the employers really stand up, bound together and, and make their voices heard. So it, that's not so much a frustration as it's a call to action for employers to say, now is, I mean, it's always been your time, um, but now is really the time because with COVID, potential consolidation, prices going up, the commercial market is not going to look much better. So um, right. purchasers really have to um, own and, uh, and be willing to experiment with things that they might've been uncomfortable with before, um, like, a, like a narrow network um, or a high performing network or a center of excellence. Um, and send the message to their local market that they just, you know, like they can't afford it anymore. We probably have time for one more question, but you you touched on 
drug prices. And we've got a question that, you know, one employer has seen their drug prices, their, their pharmacy costs almost eclipse their medical costs. In, in some months, their drug costs are actually more than their medical costs. You know, we've read that, that by the year 2030, drug, drug prices are going to be the, primary, the, the largest source of cost to health plans. It looks like it may come before 2030. What, can you give us an example of what kind of work you've done in the pharmacy space? Well, um, this, this might have been a personal frustration for mine. About five years ago, I was trying to untangle all of the issues related to specialty pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and, and with the hopes of actually giving purchasers um, actionable steps that they could take to help control their specialty pharmacy cost. Um, because the web of, uh, of all the players in specialty pharmacy or pharmacy in general is so um, opaque, uh, the black boxes there, it was really hard to find out ways to say, do this with this player. Um, what we did do, however, was um, I think one of the things that this toolkit we ultimately put together, it's more of a how-to guide, is that we give employers a list of the types of um, drug spend that they need to look at and then um, mm. work with their PBM or their health plan to say, what are the things that we can do for, with these particular conditions and these particular claims that are driving that drug spend, um, not drug spend overall, but really target in on those um, specific high claim or, um, you know, the high cost, um, even if it's few claims. So um, that, that was one thing that was, was able to come out of it. We are in, um, planning to do a, or we are in the process of doing a PBM pharmacy online course um, where we're going to walk people like, how did we get into this mess? And how do we get ourselves out of this mess? And what are the new strategies in the future uh, to address these, um, you know, ever-growing pharmacy costs? So um, it's not available yet. It's in production, but hopefully that online course on pharmacy will help purchasers. You, um, I got one last question before we wrap up. You mentioned at the beginning that there were free resources. When we get down into these more complicated things like pharmacy, are, are these things that the employers pay for through Catalyst or? No, if, if, you, if you are a purchaser, so if you're an employer, um, you can go to um, www.catalyze.org. Um, you can, there's a, a spot there to create an account, which is a name and email. And once you've created that account, you have access to our tool library. Um, and so, and the tool library, our past webinars, virtual summits, white papers, scorecards, um, purchasers have access to the full library um, without cost. Yeah, and I will say from personal experience, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I saw a communication toolkit, which was really excellent and something right. I, would, I would definitely recommend. Well, thank you very much, Andrea. Uh, I think we're about out of time today, but it's been great talking with you, and I very much appreciate your coming on the show and helping people understand exactly what CPR does. 
I hope you've enjoyed the conversation to all you people who are listening live. We would like you to join us next month, probably about the same, it'll be the same place, hopefully about the same time. I also wanted to mention that our sessions will be available very shortly on podcasts. So you can look on your favorite podcast app or watch your social media uh, for our announcement. And we'll have a whole series of uh, podcasts that the ones that I do, along with the ones that my co-founder, uh, Jim Milloway, does about Shift Happens. So thanks very much, everybody. Stay safe, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out. <laughs>